especially in the midst of the, the distracting weather and the distracting circumstances without power, all these things. Oh God, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you, that you, uh, that you can cut right through the middle of it and, and illuminate our minds. So we pray for that. Help us to, to be focused on Christ. Give us grace to hone in and, and to behold Christ. Lord, please, oh God, we need extra supernatural grace and power today. We ask this in his name. Amen. And, uh, yeah, Mark chapter 9, you know, it's amazing if you think about it. This is probably a lot of, I don't know, if you're not from Clovis, man, this is pretty typical <laughs> when it comes to springtime. You're, you're going you're gonna to get like three or four of these a year, usually. And, uh, but it, it's, it's distracting. It's distracting, it can be, and obviously with no power, but, uh, but we're used to it. I think most of us were in the Korean church in the old days, you know, before that, in Eric's house, so... Um, that's the beauty of a church plant. You're kind of used to abnormal situations and just rolling with it. I mean, we had, we didn't have, you know, our music, and it still is without Zachary and, and Kristen, but man, you know, there's certain things that you still are trying to be a little more robust at and better at, and so with that comes a lot of learning curves and and uh, kind of just, just, just dealing with things. And, and so um, with that, though, we become, we become fighters and we become resilient and courageous, and tough. So, uh, we have been spoiled, though, since like last June, I guess, since we've been here. We have the electricity, and everybody has room to move around and breathe, and we have pianists now, and so things like that can kind of throw us for a loop. And uh, But it's encouraging today as we look. So look at Mark chapter 9. So we, as we look at this, um, we have the disciples, and they also were in a state of confusion and, and puzzlement and bewilderment as they're coming off this mountain. So this is Mark chapter 9, and we're 9, 9 through 13 today. Mark chapter 9, 9 through 13. So I'll start reading. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So, remember, everything, including today, I mean, we've been in the context of, of Peter confessing that Christ is the Christ. We've been in the same kind of arena for, for over a month now. So it all, because it does go back to that. So Peter confesses Christ to be the Messiah. And then Christ says, you're right, but by the way, keep it quiet because i got to suffer. Peter turns around and rebukes Christ for saying he must suffer. Christ rebukes Peter for saying that Jesus shouldn't say he must suffer. And then remember, Christ turns to the crowd. And he says, by the way, not only must I suffer and die for the sake of the name, but everybody else here also, they're, they're also going to suffer and die for the sake of the name. And then from that, we saw last week, they go up to the mountain, and Christ is transfigured before them. He appears before them. He's dazzling. He's glow- you know, There's some kind of anticipation of the glory to come, and they needed that for encouragement. They needed that for strengthening, because they had been told that they're going to suffer and they're going to die and all this. So Christ is saying, okay, but, but in a sense, it was, it was affirmation of what he'd been saying. Well, that has caused a problem, though. Now we have, that introduces a, a different scenario, a different problem. The problem that you now have, because remember last week when we were looking at Elijah and Moses, and you could tell with Peter 
they didn't really know what was going on. Remember, Peter wanted to make the tents and the tabernacles, and, and, and it says that they, they were terrified, and so Peter's just blurting things out. But remember, part of the problem is that they, they were confused regarding why Moses and Elijah are showing up, and they're going to be doubly confused whenever they disappear, whenever all of a sudden they go back, because you can tell they were assuming that this was the beginning of the new consummate, the consummated era, the new age being consummated, the glory to come, the age of glory. They thought it had arrived, right? You have the Messiah being transfigured. You have Elijah and Moses, who we've expected when this age comes. They're there. And so they're thinking, okay, this is it. We've, we've, we've come to this part. Now, now, now we can begin. And so why do you have to suffer if this age has begun? Well, once they disappear, that's where you look at verse 9, and it says, coming down from the mountain. And imagine the state of mind that they're in, the confusion. You can tell, you, you know they're looking back up the mountain thinking, man, what was that? Where, where'd everybody go? And so they're coming back down the mountain. Their, their, their frame of mind is, somebody described it as this, the, there's an emotional adrenaline of the mountain. The emotional adrenaline of the mountain is going to cloud their, their interpretation of the Messiah and what they just saw. So as they're going back down the mountain, that's why Christ turns around and says, okay, guys, listen. He says, it says, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. What they had seen. Now, of course, they want to say what they had seen. They want to tell everybody what they had seen. But Christ says, okay, you're not allowed to tell everybody or anybody what you had seen. And the reason for this is the same reason why we saw Christ telling people, don't go, and tell, don't go tell people that I'm the Messiah either. Why is that? Because people are not... There, there will be a misunderstanding regarding the Messiah's function and his role and his purpose and why he's here. So if you look at it in this light, this is going, because here's the thing, right? So the focus, Christ is saying, the focus needs to be on my humiliation. If you go around telling people what you just saw on the mountain, it's going to, it's going to move the focus away from my humiliation, my suffering, my death, my rejection, and it's going to bring, it, it's going to bring something else into focus that shouldn't be in focus right now. In other words, there's going to be an imbalance towards the glory part as opposed to focusing on the humiliation of the suffering part. And here's the thing about this, okay? This happens for us all the time. If you think about our own context, and, and so, so all the time, you know, you can have people, and you hear the phrase, you know, you're so, you're so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. And okay, so, so what does that even mean? Now, in a sense, you can look at that and, and, and you can say, okay, so, so consider like the radical Anabaptists in the 17th century. What they were doing is they were saying, okay, the end of the world is about to come any day now. And so because of that, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to kick my feet up. We're going to all join together in this commune. You know, throw all your goods in because Christ is coming in like a week. In two weeks max, Christ is coming. So quit your jobs, you know, every, everything you were doing, stop catechizing, stop. I mean, what's the point, right? We're all going to be taken out of here in two weeks. So don't do anything. And so that's an imbalance that happens when all your focus is on the glory to come, the heaven to come. When all you're focusing on is that, you're, 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 the practicalities of life, what you do, what you know, your work, catechize, all these things, those go out the window because they're irrelevant, they're unnecessary. And at the same time, though, you can have, and, and you know, of course, that's the radical Anabaptist. I would also say, like, any kind of dispensational mindset. Same thing, especially like your, your more extreme classical dispensational. 
You know, where you're saying, hey, we're, you know, rapture's happening any day now. Rapture's happening this year. You're seeing Russia do this and Russia do that. So, so now you kind of you ease off the gas pedal as far as some of these long-term kind of things. And this is a reality. So it's not wrong. See, here's the thing. Okay? It's not wrong to focus and to look at the, heaven, the heavens to come, the glory to come, this age of consummation. This, the return of Christ. That's not wrong. In fact, everything that we do in this life should be motivated by our zeal of looking at Christ. Right? So, but at the same time, you know that there can be an imbalance. And that's what Christ is trying to protect here. If you go around telling everybody what you just saw, their minds are going to be spinning to such an extent that that's all they're going to focus on. And that's exactly what you have Peter doing here. That's exactly what you have James and John doing here. So Christ tells them, there will come a time when you can actually say something. Because you see that at the end of nine. Look what he says. Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Once that happens, then by all means, and we see Peter doing that in Second Peter. We saw last week how Peter, he describes it, that, that we were on the holy mountain with Jesus. We heard, the, we heard the voice from the cloud. So there'll come a time when, yes, go around and tell people, but that time is not yet. And so that's important for us because what does it mean for us? We live post-resurrection. Christ is saying, until I'm raised from the dead, don't say anything about what you just saw. Now that he has been raised from the dead, go around and tell everybody. Look at this. This is a, this is a, a very um, strange situation. Look at Mark chapter 16. Look what happens here. This is ironic. So look at 7 and 8. So at the end of Mark, this is after the resurrection. When Christ is raised from the dead, the tomb is empty. There's an angel sitting there. The women go into the tomb, or at least by the tomb, outside the tomb. And in verse 6, the angel says, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he, is, just as he told you. So, they, you know, right? So go around and tell everybody. But look at verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here you have a command, right? after Post-resurrection, start telling everybody. Now's the time. They don't do it. Eventually, the word will get out, of course, and trickle out, and then it's going to be explosion. But the thing is, is there, there are seasons, right? There are seasons where the, where the things about the Messiah are to not be shared, the vision, the, the, the things, the sight that they had seen is not to be shared, but that time is not right now, for us, I mean. Right? That time was during the life of Christ. There was a season. It was a temporal season. It was a momentary, play, momentary suspension in time where Christ is saying, okay, keep this hush, because remember we saw, we have to, we have to help people understand the role and the purpose of the Messiah before they can fully embrace what the Messiah came to do, and His glory, even His glory. So, the next thing, look at verse 10. Right away. I mean, it's amazing because it's almost like, okay, so Christ tells them this in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 10, and then they start, they start implicitly. This says, They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant, and implicitly they're starting to... So, so this is, it's almost like it's behind the scenes. They seize on that statement. But notice the part they seize on. They don't seize on the statement, tell nobody. They seize on the statement regarding what it means to rise from the dead. And I'd spent all week, this last week, it was fascinating stuff. I've really not just sat down and done like a deep dive on 
the different views of the resurrection that people had in first century Judea. And, and when you start to, you realize that there were so many different views of what it means to be raised from the dead, what the resurrection means. But in general, most people did have a view of the resurrection, especially at the end time. So at the end of the, at the, at the end of, you know, at the end of the era, at the end of, of everything, at the end of history, there's going to be a general resurrection from the dead. You get that from Daniel 12. And it talks about some of that, how the righteous are going to be raised and they're going to shine like the stars. Remember that? So they're looking at that and they realize, okay, there's going to be a resurrection that's going to take place at the end of history. But the idea that somebody, one person specifically, is going to die in the middle of history and then be raised from the dead in the middle of history is something that nobody had ever heard of. And so when Christ is telling them, okay, I'm going to die and be raised from the dead, and then you can go around and tell everybody, you see how that'd be confusing? Because they're like, wait a minute. Well, everybody's going to be raised from the dead. What do you mean? And, and, and so they're trying to figure out, okay, so it sounds like, is this going to happen like before that general resurrection? And if so, I mean, where, where, where is that coming from? We've never heard of that. And of course, when you start looking at scriptures, we'll see in a minute, you start seeing that Christ, there, there, are, there are plenty of places that show this as far as what the Messiah is to do. Isaiah 53 is one of them. But here's the thing, okay? Also, if you remember the Greek and the Roman and the pagan pagans in general, they had these, they always they all had pantheons of gods. And when you're looking at these gods, okay, the heroes in in general, when you look at the heroes of these pantheons of these gods, the heroes typically would not die. They would be taken up before they died. Okay? But there was never, I mean, you're not going to hear of a hero dying. And then being raised from the dead. Because when those heroes, not only, not only do they go to heaven, they don't come back. And not only do they not come back, if they did come back, they definitely would never come back in a body because the body was evil. The body was gross. The body, anything materialistic was, 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 was bad. That's where you get some of the Gnostic stuff. So that's where you have, so all these things, all these factors are in play, and they're trying to figure out what in the world he's talking about. Okay, why is he saying this? What, what does he mean by this? Now, look at the next part, though. In verse 11, they actually ask him. They say, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they ask him now, right? This is the implicit counter to Jesus' claim. Jesus says the Son of Man must die, must be lifted up, and then you can go and tell everybody. And they're looking at this, and they're basically implicitly, kind of underhandedly saying, yeah, I mean, we hear what you're saying, but don't you know other people say something different than that? Haven't you heard? You know, haven't you, like, right? So, so, so now you have a sense of, okay, now you have a, a battle of authorities going on. Because the scribes are saying one thing, and you're saying another thing. However... However, there's a catch. In verse 12, you see the catch. Jesus actually agrees. So in verse 11, they say, why is that the scribes say Elijah must come first? Okay? For the scribes, Elijah would come to anoint the Messiah with the flask of oil. That's what they believed in the first century. For the scribes, Elijah would come and prepare the people for the Messiah through repentance. That's what the scribes were teaching. Okay? The scribes were also teaching that through Elijah, Elijah was going to come and restore all things. You see that in Malachi 4. And so what do you know? The scribes are teaching something that's actually true. Right? That's exactly right. And Christ says as much in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. They're exactly right. I mean, how often do you hear that? Christ agreeing with the scribes. 
But here he does. He says, yeah, they're actually right about this. But the problem is, is you've misunderstood who Elijah is. You've misunderstood the point regarding Elijah, who the Elijah is, who he is. And then also, you know what he does here? And this is, this is glorious. Okay, in, And we've talked about this when you go through the Westminster Confession of Faith. In any of these things, they talk about the, what's called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is you interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so what he's saying here, look what he says here. Okay, In verse 12, Elijah does first come, yes, you're right, and restore all things. And yet, how is it written? of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So he's saying, yeah, they're right. It has been written. Elijah's going to come and do this. But it's also been written that the Son of Man must suffer and die. So how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? In other words, this is beautiful, right? He's saying, how do you deal with it? You interpret Scripture with Scripture. So you interpret, what that means, the analogy of faith is this. Whenever you come across something that is obscure or difficult to understand, or maybe it's even clear but then other places in the scriptures seem to counter or contradict that claim. Well, what do you do with it? Well, you go to other places in scripture that are more clear about that topic so that those places shed light on the more obscure, more difficult parts. That's basically all he's doing here. That's the analogy of faith. And, and, so, and, and this, of course, is, is, is so, I mean, so vital for us as well. Because when you look at, let's talk about this for a second, and then we'll look at some of the things that, 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 you know, some of the ways that this kind of creeps into our own day, okay? But Elijah, so does Elijah come to anoint the Messiah with the flask of oil? Well, that was a type, not, not technically, right? What does he do, though? He does come, and through his ministry, the Messiah is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Who do we see that with? John. I mean, when you, when we talked about that. When you look at Mark chapter 1, um, Way back when. And you look at it, and it's so obvious who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist wears the same clothes as Elijah. And these were not clothes that everybody's wearing in Elijah's day or John the Baptist. So so John the Baptist was very clearly making a statement when he's dressing like Elijah. John the Baptist, in a sense, eats a very frugal kind kind uh, kind of Spartan diet out in the wilderness. He's a wilderness preacher. He's a wilderness prophet. He preaches a very similar message that, that uh, Elijah preaches. He is always on the run, as we'll talk about in a minute. But here's the thing, right? When you look at who Elijah or John the Baptist is, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He is the Elijah that was promised in the Old Testament, and that's what Christ is telling us. If you look at verse 13, Christ tells us this. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. He's not talking about the Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's something different. And that's part of the confusion for the disciples. And you can tell that because look at the next sentence. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it, had, it was written of him. That didn't happen with Elijah when Christ met Elijah on the mountain. Somebody doing whatever they want to with you. This is a reference that means they, they took him against his will and did something in the sense of it's some kind of arbitrary, some kind of tyrannical um, action that they took against this person. That's exactly what you see with John the Baptist. Exactly what you see. And also with John the Baptist, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit, but I feel like John the Baptist is not given enough due. And maybe that's, of course, proper because he himself, you know, Christ must increase, I must decrease. But when you look at John the Baptist, and we see that he's arrested because he's opposing um, Herod's marriage. And then you look at other references like in Josephus. Josephus talks about, and Josephus was a first, first century historian, a Jewish historian, and he talks about John the Baptist as being such an influential, such, such a powerful uh, figure. He has such a following 
that what Herod was concerned about was an uprising or an insurrection by John's disciples because all it would have taken is one word from John and they would have stormed Herod, stormed the castle, stormed the gates, kicked everybody out, installed who they want in power. Herod knows this. Herod's afraid of this. And so what does Herod come up with? Yes, John the Baptist is out there preaching against this marriage that Herod had with Herodias. And he uses this as a pretext to arrest John and eventually have him beheaded. See how it all goes together? Because of his influence. Because of the impact that he had. And so he's a, he's a huge figure. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, John the Baptist is Elijah. So Elijah has come. So in other words, you guys, okay, granted, that's a good question. The scribes are saying that Elijah must come first. Well, guess what, guys? Elijah's already come. And he's already anointed the Messiah. And he's already did what he's called to do. As far as the perfection, you know, as far as restoring all things, and Malachi talks about John the Baptist, how he's going to restore all things. What's that about? Well, he, he began the work of restoration, did he not? John the Baptist began that work. He was the forerunner, and then he hands the baton off to Christ. And in Christ's life, remember, whenever John the Baptist is arrested, that's, that's when Christ begins his ministry. And it's very intentional. We saw that. John the Baptist is arrested in the northern parts. Jesus, right after he's arrested, he says, this time goes to the northern parts, begins the ministry that John had left, that had started. Jesus, Jesus takes it up. So you see all of this. And so Jesus is, again, he's trying to, he's, he's trying to bring in some, some understanding regarding Elijah, regarding Jesus. But here's the thing. As far as this idea of Scripture interpreting Scripture, there's so much in our own culture, so much in our own day. If you're imbalanced, it, it's a very serious thing. You get If you're a hyper anything, I was thinking this driving in, if you're a hyper anything in the Christian life, you're probably, you're probably a heretic. And I mean that. A hyper, think about all the different hypers, right? You have, a, you have hyper preterist, you have hyper Calvinist, you have hyper, you have hyper dispensational, you have hyper in the, Christian, in the scriptures is not a good thing. Even when it comes to, let's say, um, things that the scriptures clearly teach like election, predestination. Well, what that does not mean is that we're robots, right? Because you also have places... So in other words, you have the Scripture teaching that we've been predestined, that we've been elected. And we, we, we of course, see that, that in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. But then at the same time, you also have verses that talk about choose you this day. So we're not robots. We're not like, man, I don't really want to choose God today, you know, but I, I man, I guess I... No, we're... When God gives you a new nature, you want to choose Him. So that's that. So in other words, as you look through Scripture, you're able to recti- you're, you're able to rectify these 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 seeming contradictions or things that that are that 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 go against each other. Also, here's another one: free will. You know, you look at free will, and everybody talks about free will. It's just the word that everyone throws out. But then, if you look at verses, I have some verses here. Free will. What does free will mean? Right? Who says? You'll never see free will in the Bible. It doesn't mean that our wills are unable to act or choose what we want. But it means, so so for instance, here's what the Bible says, just a few verses about about the will, okay? Um, John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Galatians 5, 1, For freedom Christ has set us free, for freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, to a yoke of slavery, which implies what? You used to be enslaved. You used to be carrying around a yoke of slavery that you were enslaved to, right? Whatever that was. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
2 Peter 2.19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to right? You guys see what I'm saying, right? So in other words, you have the idea in Scripture that we are called to choose, make decisions, everything else, but you also have the same Scripture in the same Bible saying that you are enslaved either to sin or to righteousness. So how do you rectify it? Of course, it means that our natures are in bondage either to sin or we're in bondage in a sense to Christ in the sense of we, we, are, we want to serve Christ and, 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 and honor Christ and live for Christ, right? And so that's where you get this idea. So we're free to act according to our nature. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many other ones. Even, even let's say, going back to, um, you know, you have hyper-Arminians, you have hyper-this, you know this, but hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinists, the whole, the whole thing where you just... You don't have to evangelize. God's done all the work because you have people who are elect, because you have people who are predestined. Why evangelize? Why do anything? Well, the Bible tells us why we don't do that, because God uses means. He uses people. He uses the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so you see all of these imbalances that you can, these, these, these rabbit holes in the sense of imbalances that people go down. And, and Christ, that's exactly what's going on here. So they're fixated on the one thing that the scribes had said, and Christ is saying, no, yeah, but you've got to also look over here at the other places regarding what the Bible also says. You can't just fixate on one thing. Genesis to Revelation is the Word of God. Right? And that's what he's pointing out. So that's why he's using this. And, um, I mean, there's, there's so much more. I mean, you know, God is love. Everybody, Jesus, God is love. God is love. Well, God is also angry with the wicked every day. That's a big one, you know? Well, how do you rectify? In the same Bible, it says God is love, and it says in Psalm 5.5 that God hates all evildoers. How do you rectify it? Well, we know how. Because when we say God is love, that means that God loves holiness, righteousness, goodness, and he hates anything opposed to that. Anything that's not righteous, holy, good, etc. So that's how you do this, right? So that's the thing. Anytime, I mean, Jesus loves everybody. You look at the commercials. He gets us. You look at the chosen. These dorky Jesuses everyone wants to present. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. When you're looking at this, you also have a Jesus who goes in and flips tables. And this is spectacular. When you see these tables, man, you want to talk about ticking people off. These, these temples, you know who's, I mean, this was in the courtyard there. Everybody's there, and these things had, had been operating for a very long time. Really, ever since, the, ever since the, the Israelites came back from exile, they were in the courtyard doing things like Jesus come, when Jesus comes in there, and he starts flipping tables, man. You want to start, you want to talk about stepping on people's toes and upending very significant entrenched traditions. That's what he's doing. And then in John, it says that he gets it like a whip, right? And he's going through whipping things. I mean, this is, what would you, what, you know, if that, in other words, here's the thing. What if you had, and this is a real question, what if you had a show or a commercial where instead of airing on the side where Jesus never offends anybody, Jesus loves it, what if you had the Jesus who all he's doing is flipping tables and berating Herod and getting on it, right? We would be like, oh, that's awful, that's horrible, why are we watching but when it's the Jesus that's just mushy and just really nice, everyone loves that. You notice that? So both sides are wrong. If you just focus on the one, it's wrong. And that's what Christ is doing here. That's the beauty of the analogy of 
faith or uh, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. You get the whole picture, and that's what Christ is doing here. So look what he says. I want to I point to a few things here. Okay, look at the part in verse uh, 13. I want to hone in on this, okay? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. That last phrase, just as it has been written of him, that part right there is the difficulty. Because where in the scriptures do you have anything like the Elijah to come is going to be treated badly? And, he's go- and they're going to do to him whatever they want. Where do you have that in the Old Testament? And the, the answer is really, you, you don't have it explicitly stated. What, you, what Christ is talking about here, and this is the part that we usually forget, when it comes to Elijah, what he's doing is this. Remember the problem that the disciples have. The problem is that they have not yet reconciled Messiah and suffering. They have not yet reconciled their own life as followers of Messiah and suffering for the Messiah. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to instill in them the reality that not only Jesus suffers, but this Elijah figure that you think is going to come in and just usher in this glorious age, guess what, guys? He also has suffered. He also lost his head. He also, and he says it's been written that that must happen. Where has it been written? Uh, go to 1 Kings chapter 19. And this is just a preview. I mean, all we're going to do here is just briefly look at Elijah's life. Elijah lived a life of turmoil and suffering and, and difficulty and, and, and rejection and persecution. Okay, 1 Kings 19, and, and the backdrop of this is this, okay? Remember when Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal? And there's 450 prophets of Baal, and, and, and they have this competition, and they're seeing, you know, whose God is going to light this altar up, and... Elijah's making fun of them and saying, "How? Where's your God?" Because they're crying out, you know, and they're 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 cutting themselves because that was this idea regarding Bell. That's how you appease Bell, which shows you it's demonic, man. That stuff's demonic. Here's the thing, though: nothing happens for the prophets of Bell, right? There is no altar lighting or. Anything. But Elijah turns around. Elijah calls God to burn the altar, and sure enough, boom, it sets on fire. Here's the part we forget: what happens to those 450 prophets? Elijah takes a sword and starts hacking them to pieces. And then this is the backdrop. This is, the reason I'm saying this is because, consider, I, Elijah had a troubled life. Look what happens. Verse 1, now Ahab told, after he slaughters all these prophets, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. In other words, I'm coming for you, Elijah. And here's the catch. They'd already been coming for him. They already hated his guts. They were already trying to kill him. He's already been on the run. He's already been fed in the wilderness by ravens and everything else. And now here again, they're like, guess what? Now we're really coming for you. And so he goes to Mount Horeb. It says in verse, uh, verse 3, it says, And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. First he comes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And here he says, And he requested for himself that he might die. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that Elijah here, even in his duress, even in his struggles, even in his turmoil, he trusts in the providence of God. He doesn't seek to destroy his own life. He rests in God's providence. God, you know, God, please, take me out. I'm not going to do it. Will you do it? And God says no. Thankfully, he says no. But here's the thing, okay? After this, um, he goes on. 
It says that he, he uh, uh, verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise. Isn't that nice? God comforts us in our afflictions. God comforted John the Baptist. You know he comforted John the Baptist in prison. Anytime you read these accounts of guys being thrown into prison or thrown into jail or anything like that for their faith, the Holy Spirit is always comforting and encouraging and strengthening them. Always. And it's in a, I read this book called um, Persecution in the Early Church by a guy named Herbert Walker. So Herbert something. And this guy, I tell you, you go through there and you read the accounts of the suffering, the horrendous suffering and persecution that the Christians who are reading this book, by the way, the book of Mark, and the sufferings they go through and the, the inexplicable ways the Holy Spirit shows up and encourages them and comforts them in their trials. It's crazy. It's amazing. And the same thing's happening here. God shows up, but check it out in verse 9, okay? Elijah goes to a cave, lodges there, and behold... The word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And where is he? He's on Mount Horeb. What is Mount Horeb? It's the mountain where Moses, that's Mount Sinai, the same mountain. Verse 10, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am, I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Remember, and that's where God comes and says, no, I have 7,000 that have not bent the knee. But my point is, is this. His life was a life of brutal persecution and suffering. And when you go back and you look at John the Baptist's life, what do you have? You have a life that is filled with persecution and suffering. Eventually, he's martyred. He's beheaded for the sake of Christ. And so what is Christ telling them implicitly? You guys have to realize that the idea, the fate of the major figures in the Bible have always suffered. They've always been rejected. And so who are we to think that we're not, to be, that, that we're, that we're not going to suffer, that we're not going to be rejected, that we're not going to be persecuted? That's what he's trying to normalize for these guys, and they still don't get it to a certain extent. And so, especially, I mean, granted, look, they're coming off the mountain. They're coming out of this realm of glory. They're coming out of this situation where they've seen things, man, they, that nobody has ever encountered. In the history of the world. And they're coming down and they're trying to figure out what was all of that about. What was all of that about if, that, if that's not the beginning of this age of glory? What is that about? And so Christ, again, he's trying to, he's trying to instill in them this, this idea. Here's the thing. Why does the three get that glimpse, that, that glimpse, by the way? You know why? Because it's like this. Look, here's the other thing to take away from all this. Okay, Not everybody gets to see this and not everybody gets to hear about this. But the reason Christ showed them, showed the three, Peter, James, and John, is because they are the pillars of the group. And they are called to encourage. So in other words, when the, when the disciples are discouraged when they're suffering, when they're, when they're, when they're, when they're downcast, when they're thinking, man, are, are we doing the right thing? Are we following the right guy? The, the three, their job is to turn around and say, guys, yes, we have seen things, trust us, we're, this is the right guy. Now they don't do that. Peter bells, which shows you how, I mean, it's amazing, and we do it too. <laughs> but Peter bells, but it's, it's, the, you know, it's the principle of 2 Corinthians. Think about this, okay? For every one of us, God has placed you into, he's given you certain experiences, certain situations, certain wisdom, certain insight into certain areas that he hasn't given everyone else. Why has he given you that insight, given you that wisdom, given you those experiences, the heartache, the suffering, the troubles that you go through? 
And some of those things, maybe they're not just trials and troubles and, and, and difficulties. Maybe they're, you know, those gifts that you have, those certain things, those certain blessings that God has bestowed you with. Why does he do that? He does that so that we can turn around, in 2 Corinthians it tells us, so that we can turn around and encourage others with those things that God has given us. So he gives these three that insight to strengthen them and to help them. And by doing so, guess what? The church is going, it should be, ideally, going to be established and set up. Um, here's the other thing, though. And lastly, as we, as we wind down here, okay? Here's the other thing. They don't get, I mean, the, the reality is, is, is if, if they had just stopped and asked themselves, why does Christ have to do this? That's what they don't understand. Christ must suffer. You know, they don't get the must part yet. It's not like Christ just feels like, hey, this is just the way. He has to do this. If he doesn't do this, what happens? Our sins are not atoned for. Our sins are not forgiven. He has to drink the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment. He has to suffer. Otherwise, if he doesn't suffer, if there's no humiliation, there's no exaltation. And the same thing with, with the church. There was a guy, I was doing a podcast this last week, and this guy told me something I'd never thought of in my life. I don't know if it's true. haven't spent much time thinking about it. In a sense, but in, the, in another sense, it's absolutely true. There's no doubt. But he said this. He says, Christianity is the only religion that whenever it's persecuted, it flourishes. Is that right? The only religion that does that? That's the part I haven't really thought. You know that's true with Christianity. And that's why you have this, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you have Puritans talking about, you can, you can take me out, but if you mow me down, there's going to be a hundred who come after me. And that's what you have. And so that's what we want here. With, with, when you're talking about the things of Christ, you can't, you can't escape the fact that when it comes to suffering, you have to do it. And we have to do it. That's the thing for us. The disciples have to do it. We have to do it. So rather than be... You know what it says? Go, turn, turn with me to 1 Peter. And we're going to close with this. 1 Peter says this. In 1 Peter, look at chapter 1. He's dealing with people who are struggling, who are aliens, who are exiled, who are sprinkled with his blood. All these things, right? And then if you look down at chapter 1, look at, look at verse 3. These people are suffering horrendously. And you get that throughout the context. But look what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Long story short, he's saying this. You have certain blessings. You have certain things. You have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, it will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. The reason you have this is because of Christ. And look at what it says. It says, though, in verse uh, verse 7, so that the proof, oh, excuse me, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why have you gone through various trials? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And he goes on and on. But here's the point. These people, and we as well, you know what happens usually when we suffer? We complain and we 
gripe and we get bitter and we wonder why and we, we get upset. And, and, but here's the thing. What is at the end of all the suffering? You are becoming more like Christ and you have an inheritance that is unchanging. Nobody's going to take it away. It's, it's up there with, through Christ. Why? You know what I mean? Like, and I do it too. But why do we complain whenever we suffer? Why do we complain? This is the best thing that can happen to us. The humiliation aspect, the suffering aspect, the difficult aspect, the trial, the toil aspect. That is the most, that's the best thing that can happen to us as God's people. And it's, here's the, here's the part. It's normal for God's people. It's part of it. The disciples have to learn that. But when you actually think about, next, I'm, try it. When you're suffering, whatever, it, you know, whether it's, whether, whether, whether it's your patience, whether it's, uh, you know, you're hungry, whether it's the wind, I mean, the wind probably gnaws on my patience maybe more than anything. It's so annoying, right? But whatever it is, think of that. Every time you're suffering, ask yourself, why am I complaining about this? Well, you're complaining because of the flesh, because of the sinful man that hasn't resigned to the providence of God in the suffering, and because we haven't normalized that experience. So it's not to say that the Christian race is without any joy, without any success or victories. Of course it is, right? Of course it is. We saw that last week when they went up to the mountain. We're talking about how every Lord's Day, it's a, it's a, it's a type of going up to the mountain. We have these, 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 these times, you know, and of course, of course there's joys. In the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles. That's what Peter's talking about, right? As you're going through this, have joy. Be hopeful. James says it in James 1. So there's a lot to take away just when it comes to suffering, and that's exactly why Christ is saying, guys, you're not ready for the exaltation part yet. People are not ready for people to go around and just tell them what you saw on the mountain. Because if you do that, they're going to get all dizzy with the, with the, with, with the glory side, and, and first, first comes suffering, first comes rejection, first comes me going to the cross, and then you guys also, like Peter, is going to go to the cross, and James, and, and James is actually, what's going to happen to James? He's going to be the second martyr in the book of Acts. You have Stephen, and then you have James, he's going to lose his head. And then John's the only disciple that, that, that didn't, of all the twelve. But, you know, that's the thing. That's the reality. So, uh, we live on this side of the resurrection. We have power. We know that Christ is stomped on the head of the demons. But at the same time, we also know that as we come down the mountain, we are, we are in that. We're not, in, we're not on the top of the mountain, right? We're at, we're at the bottom with work to do, with wrestling to take place. Just, I mean, Clovis in a city, wherever you live. I mean, if you're coming in from Fort Sumner, Portales, all these places, man, I was telling James, James is like, man, you know, he's like four years old. He's recognizing the depravity, the corruption, man. There's a lot of work to do. Darkness, man, darkness, darkness, darkness everywhere you look. And so, of course, guess what? As the gospel advances, guess what's going to happen? Resistance, pushback, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And that same thing with our flesh. As the gospel advances in our flesh, guess what happens? The flesh doesn't like it. It's going to push back. It's going to resist. So expect it, right? But we have Christ, and He gives us hope. So let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for our, our King, our, our Savior. Thank You that, that He endured the sufferings of not just the cross, but life in general, Lord, that every step He took, every breath He took, that it was an act of humiliation compared to where He came from. We thank You, oh God, that He is, that he is the victor, that He is our elder brother who has gone before us and has conquered the foes and and Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have that in this life, though we suffer, though we struggle, though we toil, 
Lord, though we are up against so many foes, that insurmountable foes apart from Christ, Lord, we praise you that, that you have given us the victory in Christ, that you've given us the, the comforter, the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, please especially be with us in our struggles and our trials and our tribulations. We thank you for them. Lord, forgive us for not thanking you for our trials enough. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for the, for the times we complain about these things. Thank you, O oh God, for those who have gone before us and suffered and suffered for the sake of Christ, let us also do the same so that generations uh, beyond us can look back, and even if it's just our kids or our, our neighbors, or that they can take uh, encouragement and comfort from our own sufferings. Lord, please give us grace, and let us do it all for Christ's name. Amen. All right, please go ahead and stand, and we'll have our... Look at that, the wind died down. Benediction.